You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and uh, we are coming to you live from the South End Comedy Festival. Thanks to Ross and everyone, uh, Benji, who teched the show. Um, thanks for having us in South End. Uh, this is an extraordinary interview with an extraordinary lady. Jade Adams is someone who is not just funny and talented but and skilled, but she also, you can just feel the star quality radiating off her. And she's one of those people who just walks into the room and everyone in there is either already a fan or two minutes later is a lifetime fan. She's going to be a real star. And uh, I am excited to have spoken to her at this little moment on her journey. It's a bit like the Sindhu V podcast. I feel it's very it's a very privileged position to kind of get this chat with someone just at the point before they stop accepting my calls. So <laughs> there's a lot to enjoy here. We're going to jump right in. There's a, there's a huge amount of... Um, I'm not going to say anything. This is so great. You're going to love it. Jade Adams. Jade, you've just come from the Royal Albert Hall. I have. I've never even set foot in it. I've never been. How is it? I'd never been there before. And actually, when I moved to London in 2011 to be a comedian, one of the things I said when I got there is uh, someone asked me what my dream is. And I said my dream would be to be stood in a sparkly gown singing opera at the Royal Albert Hall. (laughs) I was wearing a tight uh, pleather leggings singing Cell Block Tango from Chicago. So I was close. (laughs) (laughs) And are you... Sorry, go on. It was for the Guilty Feminist podcast. Uh, uh, They were doing a big live show at the Royal Albert Hall and we sort of did a mashup with my musical comedy night that I put on. My musical theatre comedy night called A Musical and it was sort of like a mashup and we did the opening number. It It was... fantastic it was like because i'm very cynical about as soon as there are big groups of people all together in one group i i immediately don't trust them like i wouldn't watch i wouldn't watch breaking bad until everyone shut the fuck up about it okay and so i i big groups of people all together agreeing with the same thing reminds me a little bit of nazis so i like a bit of (laughs) i like a bit of free thought you know a bit of free thinking um but i cannot tell you what it's like to be in a room Five thousand feminists all wanting the same thing. It was like church. I've I've been to church, but Jesus was like a load of women. And like, who's ever been to church with a cleavage and a red lip on? I have. 
it was it was phenomenal it was it was it was it got it was emotional there was a bit there was some crying in it and just lots of love it was a lot of love and a lot of women all just being like chuffed for like i there was a moment i went because i've been researching um feminists for my new show on wikipedia nothing intense um and uh i uh so i've been researching feminism because it's not a conversation i've had often um the the i'm working class and you know they they talk to us about clever shit like that um so i've been researching this for the 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 new show that i'm writing this year and uh, i said to uh, one of the girls i was like isn't it great all them years ago them women tied themselves to the gate and force fed themselves wouldn't they been like well chuffed did they seem like five thousand of us all in a room going yeah mate like (laughs) i i just felt like a, a serious amount of and i don't feel that very often which is like this is cool this is nice it was lovely I'll be a tad culty, but you know what? No one died, so that's fine. <laughs> so let's talk about your origins in comedy, because you came to comedy, you came to London in 2011 to be a comedian. You were already a performer before that. You were a cabaret performer. Yes. So let's take us right back to your, the first time you stepped on any stage, as I, a, presumably as a kid. I was five. I was five years old, and my auntie Julie owned a disco dancing school called Julie Adams Dance School. And, or no, Julie Martin School of Dance, one of the two. But we did something called freestyle disco dancing. And it was like a, my auntie owned the school. It's not a lot of people that know what it is. Maybe you do, because it's working class. Has anyone, has anyone heard of that before? No. Okay. Um, I judged you. I'm sorry, Southend. <laughs> Um, but I, you know, you're real people. That's what I mean. I don't mean like you're like scum of the earth. You're like real people, like my cool people. Um, the rest of them, they're all fucks. Um, <laughs> but I did freestyle disco dancing and it was basically my auntie owned the school. So all the girls in the family did it. And me and my sister danced together, um, in, um, in a partnership. So you do things like solo dance, pair dance, trio dance, rock and roll, team dance, um, what else? Oh, fun dance, mum and daughter dance. Mum never got involved. I used to have to go and borrow a mother um, to do it. And then me and my sister danced together. My sister was an incredibly uh, good dancer. Very good. She did something she was very good at for 13 years. Whereas I did something... I, I've always been fat. I make a joke on stage, which was that I was born 11 stone. And, um, which isn't true, by the way. <laughs> My poor mother. But I was, I, I've always been a big girl. So like doing dance in a, in a skin tight Swarovski like costume you know there was no there was no time for like body issues when I was younger mum was like you're wearing lycra and you're going to get over it um but I basically did something I was terrible at for 13 years and learned all about failure um whereas my si- and my sister ended up I'll be honest being a, sort of a bit of a useless piece of shit towards the end of her life but uh and I'm an a- I'm an absolute legend um <laughs> But that was the first time, and then I was able, I was allowed to finish dance at the age of 17. And then I started getting involved. Uh, I, I met some girls at school. So mum sent me to a nicer school. So I didn't end up like the people that I went to primary school with. Um, cause they were a bit rough and uh, just a little bit rough. And, um, so we went to a nice school. We got there because, uh, we went to church for seven years. Uh, not a religious family, but mum was like, go to it that angle yeah yeah Yeah. i'm sure there probably is parents in there doing the same thing but send your kids to sunday school and they can get into a nicer school so we did seven years of that um went to this school and then i'm initially was friends with all the rough girls immediately because i just found them and then we fell out and then in the year eight 
I was sat on my own eating my eating my lunch on my own because I'd f basically one of the girls had stabbed me in the leg with a compass on the bus stop, <laughs> and uh, because they lit the school toilets on fire and blamed me and it wasn't me and then they got in trouble for it and then Lydia. I shouldn't say her name because like, I'm more famous now, but do you know what? Fuck it. She stabbed me in the leg with a compass on the bus stop and then I was alone. And then these girls, these girls, it's all full names at school as well, isn't it? Lydia, Melissa, Nido. Um, oh, I've said all the names. Shit. Anyway, um, so we were all like hanging out and lit the school toilet so far. I didn't do it. I was the one who put it out. Oh, look, we're amplifying. Lovely. And then I was sat on my own, and then these girls came over who were, they were the nerds at school, and they came over to me, and they went, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm okay. They went, do you want to come and join us in the music room? And I did, and that is the reason I'm sat here right now in front of you. The reason I didn't end up being useless or feeling like I didn't have anything to give anyone was because of that sliding doors moment where these two nerds came over who spent all their time in the music room came over to me and and then they took me into the music room and I didn't leave there for four years and I learned how to play piano I learned I was in a chamber choir I used to be in a choir of Paul Potts from Britain's Got Talent <laughs> And then, uh, and then Hannah, one of the other girls, she did amateur dramatics. So I went to her, her, her amateur dramatics. Oh, I got a story about that. Uh, so she, she was in a, this is contentious. I'm sorry. If you get uncomfortable, it's fine. It's not meant to be a comedy show. So, um, Hannah was in this choir and I turned up thinking I might go. And it was ran by this guy called. <laughs> And I turn up, and he already knew me from this other drama class that we were in. I was about 14. And I turn up, and he turned to Hannah, and he said, that girl is not joining my choir, like, pointing at me. Ten years later, my mum and dad opened the Bristol Evening Post. He is a paedophile, and he is in jail. Mm. <laughs> oh, so unusable. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. But a, a lovely victory nonetheless. <laughs> I did win. <laughs> so I was in all school plays. We had a teacher that used to write school plays for us. I, you know, gives main parts and stuff. And then I carried on doing, always performing. And then sixth form happened. And then I went to university. And it was at university that I started getting into like experimental theatre and physical theatre. And I worked with the National Dance Company of Wales a bit. And uh, did contemporary dance, used to put a lampshade on my head and do tap dance into Tom Waits, as you do, um, <laughs> with like a drill. Um, you know, contemporary theatre. And then we'd like, we'd like ask for the Arts Council of Wales for money and they'd give it to us sometimes. And we did little performances. And, and, then, I, and then I got involved. I, uh, I basically, this advert was in, I think it was even in the paper in Bristol, and they were looking for performers. And this is another sliding doors moment. They were looking for performers, and uh, and it and, uh, and it said, oh, you know, if you have a, a show that you want to put on, and I'd just done at university this show called Peter and Jane Dis Discover the Joy of Socks. And it was this weird alternative, like, odd... I can't even describe what we did, but we pretended we were blow-up dolls and danced to um, Filthy Gorgeous from the Scissor Sisters. <laughs> And we took that, and it was that, people enjoyed it. And we took that show and we did it in this venue. And I'd previously met this other girl called Hannah at university. 
And then she happened to be in the building at the same time. And she walked past me and she was like, hey, Jade. I was like, hey, Hannah. She was like, oh, my friend's got an inflatable church. Do you want to come and be a priest? (laughs) You basically marry people at a festival. uh, And then I did that for five years. I basically, I've married hundreds of people. At Glastonbury? At Glastonbury, no, at Glastonbury, Festival, Electric Yeah, I've seen that. I must have seen you be the priest. That's hilarious. I I I didn't know that was you. That was me. So I did that for five years. So that was really my first time on a microphone with no one really like sort of being in charge of what I say or I don't. Like that was the first Ah, emceeing I'd ever done. Like I'd, you'd be outside of the church trying to coerce people to come into it whilst people were getting married. They come, they pay like 25 quid for a wedding and we really get, we gave them a great show and I do the, I do this. I I mean, I could marry someone here right now. I remember the whole script, (laughs) but I married, I've married loads of people sometimes. Oh my God. Dearly (laughs) beloved. We are gathered here today in the site of um, Festival 2015. <laughs> but the, um, sometimes they were fake. Sometimes they were people that were on drugs. Sometimes they were... I married Jake Shears to Amira once. Um, and, then, and then there was this one time that was really beautiful. And it was this woman called Kath and her husband. And they were from Portsmouth. And she'd been through several bouts of cancer. And he was like... You know the type of guy who's got a heart of gold but probably can't spell gold? (laughs) That guy. And he loved her. Like, he nearly lost her. And he loved her so much. He loved her, you know? We just couldn't... You couldn't tell her he loved her unless he was aggressive, you know? Like, he loved her. And she loved him. And she'd been through all these troubles. And they told me about this beforehand. And I I think one of the most incredible moments on stage I've ever had was we... Because all of us just all loved them... Everyone came. We had hundreds of people at this church just falling out of this inflatable church. Like, whilst I'm remarried, Catherine, her husband, and it was, like, one of the most beautiful moments I've ever had in my life. I might have been high, but do you know what? That's not the most important part of that story. I was, you know, it was it was hedonistic. It was the hedonistic days, okay. but then... Meet, you just meet people and then, and then people were like, you're good at comedy, you should do that. And then I lived in Cardiff after university, did drama, theatre and media at the University of Glamorgan, which doesn't exist anymore. Turned um, out to be a paedophile. Turned out to be a paedophile. <laughs> and, um, and it was there I, uh, my best friend, who said to me, I, she noticed I do a lot of, lot of stuff, doing this, doing that dance, singing, what, you know, I had no focus. And she said, what do you want to be? She said, we were peeling lines to do the cocktails that night. And she said, what do you want to be? And I said, I'd, li- I'd like to be a comedian. I think I want to be a comedian. And she said, well, from now on, if anyone asks you what you do, you tell them you're a comedian. So for two years, without doing any comedy, <laughs> I told people I was a comedian and I started getting booked. And that's how that's I did... That's incredible. And that's how it happened. Okay, okay. Thank you, yeah, absolutely. So this is Jade. What a joy. Uh, you can hear how much fun it is to talk to her. Um, and you can feel people in the room, as I'm sure as they are in your bath, dog walk or uh, car journey, are being converted. You can hear that happening to people in the room. She's magnificent. And um, before we get back into the interview, just a quick break to let you know that uh, she is bringing her show. It's called The Ballad of Kylie Jenner's Old Face. It's at the Pleasance Courtyard in Pleasance too. Big old room. She's going to fill it, I'm sure. It's on at half nine every night from July the 31st to August the 25th. So 
if you're at the Edinburgh Festival, do not miss Jade Adams. Congrats on um, on uh, Spreadsheet Day, by the way. In the Facebook group, there were 111 entries for Spreadsheet Day. I was uh, incredibly impressed with that. I've been retweeting them on Twitter as well. You can send your late entries to that, at ComComPod, and I retweet them all. My favourite, I think, so far is the person who has gone old school and cut out um, sections from the Fringe Guide and pasted them onto a piece of cardboard with written uh, handwritten notes. That, I mean, it's it's sort of a little bit serial killery, but we like that kind of stuff for the podcast, so well done you. Um, also at the Edinburgh Festival, of course, please do come and see Primer, my work-in-progress show, which I'm previewing tonight. It's quite fun to be previewing a thing which is in itself a work-in-progress. I'm hoping next year to uh, simply, <laughs> simply sort of, like, look askance towards a venue... And that will be the whole thing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? As I become more and more removed. No, this is a pre it's a pre-preview, pre-pre-pre-preview, in which all I do is I I had some material that I was trying to get work last year. I was trying to work up about the concept of I love it when the audience do the work for me, you know, closure on a joke where you fill in the gaps, like the comic says A B A B C and everyone goes, Ah, oh, D, brilliant. And I was trying to write material about how one day my dream for a gig is just to give you the bits and you do the work. <laughs> so it's like the opposite of an improv show where I come out and give you some of my suggestions and you connect them together in your heads and then I take the credit. And that would be fun. But nonetheless, in, uh, in Edinburgh this year, three o'clock every day, apart from the, a double day off in the middle for me to hold my children and weep, uh, I'm going to be at the Monkey Barrel doing Primer. And it's, I mean, on the strength of uh, the preview that I did after this one, uh, after this chat, in uh, or shortly before this chat, in fact, at the South End Comedy Festival. I mean, it's looking in pretty good shape. But the whole point is this year, as soon as it looks, I'm going to be like Ross Noble about it, only only in that, specifically in that, when, you, when stuff works, you take it apart again. Don't polish anything. This is the rule. I'm going to de-polish the stuff. So uh, hopefully you can come and see it more than once. But give, give, me like a, give me a couple of three days to turn over in between times. That's everything for now. I think that's all the blurbs. You can join the Facebook group. You can follow me at ComComPod and all the socials. And um, I feel like I say other stuff here normally, but I feel like there's no other stuff to say. Let's get back to Jade Adams. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So there's a lot to unpack there. I want to go... so much. I want to go right back to... You said you were allowed to stop dancing. That's clearly a thing that you've said, right? That's like, uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's, that's giving us a flavour of the relationship whereby you and your sister dance together. Yeah. And I know your sister passed away eight years ago, nine years ago? Yeah, 2011. Okay. Oh, I like it when people and, know, thanks, Jim. Oh, no worries. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested in the relationship between 
you and your sister and performance. Because I saw a, an interview you did about grief that's on uh, YouTube. Yeah. And uh, you were talking about how you felt like you were in her shadow. Yeah. And in the kind of genesis of you as a comic, it seems to me that something like that must be like a big factor. Yeah. So when you were, you were dancing, you didn't enjoy dance. Your thing was music, but you didn't know it yet. I just wanted to put the makeup on and wear false eyelashes and, <laughs> and wear disco dancing costumes. I didn't care about the running up You didn't and want down. to actually have to do no, the thing. No, I used to fake asthma attacks to get off the dance floor and stuff like that. <laughs> I wasn't up for the moving part, even back then. And was your sister into the dancing? Was that why you were there? Because she loved it? She was only into it, really, because everyone praised her for it. I don't think she really loved it as much as... I think she enjoyed university, but my sister really cared about boyfriends, really. She was quite like... That was what she loved. She loved being loved, and she loved boys, and, and, and there was all some drama with some guy that she was around. But she did contemporary dance at university. That was her thing she did. But my mum always blames the brain tumour, but actually, she just... She was She's just quite lazy. <laughs> and that's fine. Like, she just... She was just, you know, she just liked what she liked and that was what she did and 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 that was... And that's how she lived her life. Like, there's nothing, you know, she hasn't... She only had 26 years of it. So um, I, I cherish everything she was. I don't have any regrets about what she was. She was a, a difficult person, uh, as in she just was... She, you know, she was... She's me, she was me, but, like, worse. <laughs> no politeness whatsoever didn't give a fuck about what anyone said at all okay and would defend me to the like to the point where I, when she died i was left not knowing who i was how to defend myself what what how to achieve anything because i was in the shadow of this sister that protected i'll tell you a story mark i said another name mark hit me in the stomach with a hockey stick at school we were like Gra Phil and Grant from EastEnders, right? I'm Phil, she's Grant. Always getting in trouble, Grant would come over and fix it. So Mark and I had an argument. He's hit me in the stomach with a hockey stick. He hasn't left a mark. Jenna turns up because she's got word and she's marching through the playground. And she like comes up to Mark and they start having a scrap. We then get, all get taken to... <laughs> Mr. McGregor. We're at David McGregor's office, and then Jenna's like, Jade and I need to go to the toilet. So Jenna takes me to the toilet, and we're in there, and, uh, and she's like, and we're in the toilet, and she was like, punch me. And I went, what? She went, Mark hasn't left a mark. Punch me in the eye. And I went, I'm not punching you in the eye. She was like, punch me in the eye. I was like, I'm not punching you in the eye. She had, we had this massive eye. She was like, punch me in the eye. And I was like, she was like, you need to like, leave them. We need a mark. My sister got on her knees... And there was a doorknob, and she hit her own eye. He got in so much trouble. <laughs> you don't, you did not fuck with Jan Adams at all. She was hard as fuck, and I loved her for it. But also, it meant that when she died, I was like wet lettuce. I was just, what do I do? Like, uh, who am I? And it's taken from from then till now. For, and I'm still working it out. But you know, like it's 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 it, I've. She might have held me back a bit, but it was when she died that I sort of... It, it released something in me. Like, a, I, I'm sure a lot of people that have been through grief will uh, understand this, but grief isn't just always a sad thing that happens. Sometimes it's relief. Like, she was ill for a long time. It was relief that she was no longer ill anymore because we were going through that. Um, and also, I had this, like, really uncomfortable feeling of, like... 
of like now it's almost like you know that moment in <laughs> it's been eight years so I make dark jokes about this all right so you're all gonna have to be have to be comfortable <laughs> you know that moment in um in Legally Blonde where there's like a list of people that got into the... She's at Harvard Law, and the list comes up of the people that made the, the group of people that are going to defend this case. And she walks up to it, reads it, and she turns around and she goes, Me! It was kind of like that. Because you have to imagine, she had all the attention when we were growing up. She was always sick. She had a bad knee. She had bronchitis asthma. She was always getting fingered by someone. She then had a... <laughs> She then had a brain tumour and then we had all that for five years and she had this boyfriend who was really, or her husband who was really difficult and stuff would go wrong and once a kid knocked at the door and said, hey dad, I'm yours and he didn't know about her or he did know about her but didn't tell Jenna. It was so Jeremy Kyle, I was so ashamed. <laughs> and there was all this drama constantly whilst little old Jay was just on her own playing with her Barbies or like, you know, just like sort of, you know, not getting any attention and then she got sick and then I got no attention and then she died and I got no attention. So, like, I've had this entire... I mean, my brother had even less because he's got these two loud sisters. And that's another podcast. We'll talk about him another time. <laughs> but in terms of our sister relationship, I literally had, until she died, no one even looked at me. And in fact, when she died, one of the things that upset me the most is no one ever contacted me to find out how I was. They all were worried about their grief, even like aunties and, like like estranged uh, friends of hers that she didn't, she didn't really like were like, mm, yeah, I like, miss her so much. Yeah, grief trolls. <laughs> like no one, no one cared. And, I, and, and it's it took therapy for me to go to find out that actually I'm important and people need to fucking give a shit because I care about them. And, that's, and it's all been through that. So at the same time as I would give anything, I would give anything to have her back. And I had a dream about her the other day. I was dreaming, and I don't dream about her often. And I said to Rich that I didn't... I was so annoyed I woke up because I got to have that moment with her and I would give anything to have her back. But at the same time, is I can't deny that some of the positives that have happened since it. We understand. Yeah, I... <laughs> Thank you. And it... And it it's one of the most complicated things about losing people is that, is that. And I am so privileged that, like, I get to own my story. And when I did my show in 2016 about her, I was so annoyed it was about her. <laughs> I didn't want it to be about her. My whole life had been about her. And then my, and then my debut year in Edinburgh was going to be about her. And I was so annoyed. And then, and then Rich uh, took me to Manchester. And I had this team of people around me, like, worrying. And they all pissed me off. And we, talk, we were like, fuck, fuck them. So we went up to Manchester. And <laughs> we, tried to, we tried to have sex. And um, I apparently wasn't in my eyes. And he was like, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. He was like, I can't have sex with that. So he, he, said, he said, put your clothes on and we're going out. And then he sat down with me in his cafe. And he went, why have you written a show about your sister and you don't tell anyone that you love her once? And I went, shut up, my show ain't about my sister. And he was like, it's about your sister. And then, and then I realised, oh, it's... And then when I got back, it was like a better show because I sort of embraced the fact that I'd written, like, it was, I was allowed to do it. What did you think that show was about before I you realised that? Me. 
I thought it was about me. <laughs> it was my time. But it wasn't. It was about her and how I felt about it. And, and in fact, the first... And it was five years after, because a lot of people make shows quite quickly. Yeah. I needed, I needed time, because you need to be able to joke about it, and that does not happen immediately. Like, if anyone tried to joke about me, with, about me and my sister within the first two years, you wouldn't live um, <laughs> through it. But I took five years for me to do it. And it was when I could joke about it. It was when I could laugh. And it was when I could take criticism for it and and all of that. You need to be able to process the the feelings before. Because it's such an intense thing. You have to process it. But I remember feeling elated when I was up in Edinburgh that year. And when I found out I was nominated for Best Newcomer, well, it 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 was amazing because I... I... I had owned my story for the first time in five years. Way longer than that, ten years of this shit that, that we went through with this stupid brain tumor she got. And it was the first time that I had eyes on me. And my mum and dad hadn't even seen it at that point. I'd done it all alone, like no family, just me and my thoughts and my and my um and my experience. And people listened and they liked it and they and they re- related to it and they felt connected to it and some people went mad over you know wanting to claim ownership over writing it and shit like that people go crazy um there was like a few uncomfortable things like it was like a it was sort of like a quite a big deal and um me, my mum and dad didn't tell me they were coming so we had a huge argument my mum dad and I because <clears throat> they were still quite sad obviously they lost a kid it's like a, you know that's going to trump anyone else's feelings but they were very sad and um and I'd had enough. And I just said to them, I was on the phone to them, I was at Rich's, and I just screamed at them down the phone. And I was like, you've got two fucking options. You can either get on with life and realise that I'm still here and I fucking need you. Or you're going to fucking kill yourself. Just do one or the other. And then I didn't speak to them for a month, which is massive, because my mum and I talk, like, I'd say, uh, too much. Um, <laughs> I was literally, as I arrived here, I said, bye, mum, and then came out of the car and went in. <laughs> Like, we talk all the time, so we didn't speak for a month. And then I had my penultimate show at Soho Theatre of this show. Uh, penultimate show. And I did it. And I, um, that night, for some reason... Oh, to charge it. I charged... Well, I needed to charge my phone, so I gave it to Rich to charge. And I don't normally do that. So I'm backstage getting ready to do the show, and I do the show. And afterwards, there's lots sort of very uncomfortable storylines in there. They haven't been to see it yet, but I was thinking in my head, if they do come and see it, maybe I'll change that bit. Maybe I'll change that bit. Well, at the end of the show, I finish it. I'm singing Oh Mio Babino Caro, Puccini. Everyone's crying. It's quite a big deal. And then, um, <laughs> and then, uh, uh, and then my mum and dad at the end walk out of the audience. And do you know what my first reaction was? As Cain died, my brother, I just assumed that my uh, another sibling of mine had died, but they walked out and they, they'd come to see the show without telling me. And I had this initial, like, like joy. And then, oh, God, what have I fucking just said for the last hour? And, I've, and at the end, mum said to me, she was like, two things about your show. <laughs> Number one, I don't recognise Jenna in any of your stories, but I realise that's because I'm your mother and I'm not your sister. And that's okay. And then she said, and I said, and what's the second thing? She said, stop saying the C word. (laughs) It's hard to imagine you being in someone else's shadow. It's hard to imagine the force of your personality, as we see it now, being repressed by anyone. Were you, do you recognise your you-ness in 
the you of 15 years ago? I'm very... I'm just confident, that's it now. I didn't were, you as, were you as talkative back then? Were you as, were you as... Yeah, annoyingly so. But not confident? Not confident, no. There was talking, but there was no real, like... The talking was there, but there was no real, like... Gir- there was no, I wasn't saying anything. I was saying a lot of stuff, but there was no, like... I hadn't... Like, I, I knew I had to keep talking so people kept noticing me, but there was no thought behind it. I wasn't thinking. You know, I was just saying shit. And it was annoying. Like, Mum used to kick me under the table when I was a kid and stuff, when family were over. I remember the last time she did that. I was 18, and she... Di- I was talking at the dinner table, and she kicked me under the table, and in front of everyone, I just turned to her, and I went... I am who I am. You want? <laughs> she never did it again. <laughs> so, is there is there a is it is there any coincidence in the fact that you started stand up <laughs> after you were kind of released from the shadow of your sister? There's no coincidence. It's exactly yeah. the reason why. I'm textbooks like psychology. It's it, it's literally what happened. I I had I was I was in a a shit relationship for two years, um, which was neither of our faults, even though I'm sure he thinks it's mine, if he's listening. I don't blame you. Um, uh, yeah, so the, the recording won't pick that up as someone very... It was some wag in the audience just said, what's his name? But uh, I can assure you all the names are getting bleeped. Apologies. Yeah. Um, we were, I, got, I got with a guy and then we were together and then a month after that, Jenna died and then he had to stay with me even though we had no not compatible at all um and then uh, we he tried to dump me five times but i was all like oh please don't i'm lost um <laughs> poor guy um and then he finally got rid of me and i was f- i was just an absolute mess because i'd buried all my grief into him and his life and everything and he just got rid of me and i was utterly devastated and then a drag queen came to edinburgh <laughs> and was like oh right, babe that's how he speaks tits all right, babe, I'm going to go and do drag Shakespeare to kids around Spain. Do you want to come? It's a thousand euros a week. Five months in a car, fiesta, up and down Spain with Ted, who barely liked me, and Naeus, the driver, who pretended she couldn't speak English. <laughs> and I spent five months alone with my thoughts. No internet, just me and my thoughts, and I vlogged. I did vlogging. I, I've recorded all of... I've got footage of me in every hotel room. I saw none of Spain. I cried in hotel rooms around Spain for five months, and that was how I got through my grief. I mean, how lucky am I to do that? Rather than having to, you know... I, my mum had to go to work. She had to go to Asda and stuff, and that, I, I was lucky enough to go to fucking Spain with a drag queen <laughs> doing drag Shakespeare to teenagers, because the children of Spain really need that right now. <laughs> awful it was it wasn't some of it was good some of it was bad but we didn't we didn't really get on that well but it was really good for me I didn't like I really I really like there's a lot of people that I spoke to on Facebook and stuff about my you know like that's who I oh please help me and then when I got back what I did when I got back to you is I got an email from this uh, company called funny women and they were like enter our comedy competition and I'd said no quite a few times because I only enter stuff if I'm not going to fucking win it. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I'll do it. I was like, carpe diem. I've just come back from Spain, got a few quid in my pocket. Let's do it. So I typed out the form, paid me £15. And just before I press enter, I said, I'm going to win this. 
and I press enter and I fucking won it. And I got, um, I got, thanks. And I got an agent and all that. And that's how my, that's how I became the stand up comedian that I am is, is from that. It's like a fuck, it's like Britain's Got Talent, isn't it? It's just like. <laughs> and the st- we'll get on to Britain's Got Talent. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. presumably they ask. I've been for an audition as well. Have you? Yeah. Oh, go on. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, yeah. I went for an audition this year. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not for everyone, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I went for an audition this year. So they're doing X Factor Celebrity. So they're basically getting people who are known for, uh, are known for something else to come and do. That's like a new show they're doing. Um, so my agent said, oh, this thing's coming... I know you've always said no to reality TV because Britain's Got Talent have phoned me every year for the last six years. And do you know what? If they don't phone me, I'm upset. I I feel like I'm not doing something right. But this year, X Factor had, and it was this newer, you know, you didn't have to have a sob story to enter, that sort of stuff. So I was like, do you know what? It'll be an experience. It'll be a story. So I turn up, go into the audition room. There's four of them all sat on a table and they were filming me. I haven't signed my uh, form that you're meant to sign. I don't sign those, because they can use your footage, by the way. These people that try and get you to sign stuff, don't sign it, because they can just use your footage, whatever they want to do with it. And I've, I learned from the um, the whole Graham Norton meets Adele thing not to sign those things. Um, I used to be Adele impersonator and was meant to be on that show, that thing where Adele impersonated herself with Graham Norton. Anyway, that's another story. Um, anyway, so I didn't sign this form, but I went in and I told them the story of how I, exactly what I've just said to you, how I became a performer, where it all came from, how I became a singer. I told him about Jenna. And it, all the way through it, I was like, I was like, I, I kept being very aware that the things I was saying were making them like get their, you know, this is great, okay? So anytime I said something that was like X Factor, I was like going, ding! <laughs> so you're like, this, I was like, dead sister, never had a singing lesson. Um, you know, uh, a, a phoenix from the ashes, from the, the death of my sister, like all of the X Factor things. And they were really enjoying how much I was like taking the piss out of the show whilst auditioning. So I, um, <clears throat> I, um, I auditioned and I auditioned with the song that was at the end of my show about my sister, which is Omeo Babino Caro. After I'm taught, like, I talk to you like this, like strong, thick accent. I've mentioned Asda five times. <laughs> You don't expect this girl to, like, sing opera, but I, I can do a really good impression of someone that sings opera. <laughs> it's not real... No, it's not great, because I've been at the Royal Albert Hall today. You're making me sing twice on a day. I'm, no, no, I'll do, it, I'll do it at the end. I'll do it at the end. Um, so I... So I... Um, so I, I do this whole audition, and I sing O Mio Babino Caro, and they're, like, in tears. And they like stand up at the end, and it's almost like they're like, well, "We're just going to take the whole day off work." And then I, and then I, <laughs> and I, and I leave, and I'm like, "Oh my god, I'm going to win X Factor!" <laughs> oh my god! And then I was like, "Oh my god, I just like life's going." And then about a week later, they they haven't picked me. <laughs> I was like, "How could you not?" I'm literally a walking, talking, and you know what it was? I slagged off Simon Cowell in the audition. <laughs> Rookie. I told them... <laughs> rookie error. <laughs> I told them that... Because I said, oh, you lot have phoned me loads. And they were like, have we? I went, yeah, the Brits got talent not phoned me every year. They once stood outside of my show in Edinburgh in 2016 and waited for everyone to leave. 
And then they were like, oh, can we speak to you, Jade? And he just stood there whilst people are crying and coming out and, like, put, give him, put, giving me money and, you know, needing a hug and stuff like that. And he just stood there waiting. He was getting on my nerves. And I turned to him, what, what, what do you want? And he was like, I'm here from uh, Thames Media, whatever they're called. I'm here from... I was like, oh, you're the Britain's Got Talent people. And he was like, you know, I just think your story's really great and that like, you've got great... And I was like, I'm not, I'm not up for it. But I said to him, and this is what I told them... And they were like, what did you say to him? And I was like, there's only one way I'd come on your show. And he was like, oh, what? And I went... So unusable. <laughs> <laughs> so when you first did stand-up, you, you mentioned there the opera and doing an impression of an opera singer, which of course yeah. you're a fabulous opera singer, and you said, uh, I'll do it at the end. Now, when you did the Funny Women set, your kind of competition set, your barnstorming, this is, this is me winning set, was you singing Ness and Dorma? Yes. Was it? So it was, um, it was one of those, uh, presumably, it was the sort of act I'm glad I didn't have to follow in a competition. Now, I wasn't in Funny Women. <laughs> Unbelievable. But, um, the pain is real, mate. But it's, I feel that, it for you. it's that kind of... Um, do you know what I mean? It's one of those sets where you've got a secret weapon. You've got a thing in your back pocket. You can go on there and you know they're all going to stand up and they're probably going to cry. Yeah. That must have given you an incredible amount of confidence attacking the open mic circuit. Yes. Well, I also knew that I had to have a funny story as well. You can't just go up and sing. There's many comedians that try that. You can't just go up with a... <laughs> it's not... Comedy's comedy. You've got to be funny with it. So the routine that I had attached to the Ness and Dorma routine is that I'm on a mega bus and I'm dealing with some guys that call me fat. And it's uh, and the reason is is because I go over to them to ask them to turn their music down off their phones. And then <clears throat> they don't. So instead I decide to beat them at their own game and play my own music. And that's basically what the story is. And there's loads of little sort of punchlines and things in it. And at the end, after I've sang Ness and Dorma, raising my middle finger up to the, the, the four dickheads that called me fat, at the end it finishes and I get a standing ovation and I go, in actual fact, I missed my stop and ended up in Glasgow. Yeah. So I, I make sure that I always undercut any earnestness or pomposity with a joke. And, and for me, that's very important because I am a comedian. I'm not a TED Talk. And I want... <laughs> I want I want to make sure at every point of the way, I'm, I'm the idiot, I'm the arsehole who, you know, it's all very well being impressed by someone, but you have to make sure that you're always the, the... Is that something you had to learn? Did you do early open mics where you just finished on the song and they went nuts and you got a sense of, actually, this isn't what I want? Yeah, I think so. I did a routine, very first routine I ever did, was me, um, came on stage dressed in an Asda uniform and I... Uh, <laughs> do an impression of a Britain's Got Talent contestant and I've got a bunkai and I, and I, and I do a little story it's an, I've got it in my family don't be offended, my, all my family well, I've got one, I just, I'm not stoned so you can't see it um, but I, I came on in the Asda uniform and I do this little sad story like they do over the top of a Glasgow love theme from Love Actually which is the music they always use on those shows and then I sort of, um, it's like I'm doing an X Factor or a Britain's Got Talent audition and then I sing uh, uh, 
Andrea Bocelli and Sarah Brightman's Time to Say Goodbye. And then I open my um, Asda uniform and reveal a ball gown that falls out. And it's like quite an impressive routine, but there was not a punchline at the end. So I just end up being fabulous whilst people... Like, I hand out roses yeah, to people. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. So. Yeah. So I hand roses out to the audience and then I make them throw them back at me. And sometimes <laughs> during the... Sometimes during the bit, they would start throwing them too early and I'd throw them back, go, too fucking early! <laughs> so I... It, but there was no punchline. It was like, oh, here's a great piece of singing. That's great. And then I was off. And I always felt like I was cheating a little bit. So I wanted to make sure... So then... So I always set myself little tasks. And that is... After that, my... T- so my first routine I ever did was a, a, a history of dance uh, from the ages, like an evolution of dance. I've seen that routine as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, where I didn't speak at all. It was just literally like a sort of clowning... Um, dance routine that I did and then I was like well now I need to start talking so then that's when the um, Asda routine came in and then after that I was like I need a punchline and then that's when the Ness and Dormer routine came in and then that turned into oh I need more material Uh, (laughs) so then and I sort of each year I suppose set myself a new comedic task in order to be a better comedian and I do that with Edinburgh as well like I don't do similar shows each each year the show's different um, it's, it's, it's a new thing. I sort of want to try and sort of surprise the audience in a way. Um, like this year's show, there's no bells and whistles. There's no songs. There's no costumes. I'm only wearing mascara. Um, and I'm doing it all in a black turtleneck. And it's just me and a microphone talking about something I care about. And that's basically what the show... I'm doing it just to stand up. And you've deliberately done that, A, to surprise the audience and give them something different. Yeah. And B, is there an element of kind of proving to yourself you don't need the music? Yeah, Absolutely. I want to prove to myself, to the industry, that I could be someone that was in a writer's room because I don't, I haven't, I'm not in one. I'd like to be able to, I'm a great writer and I want to sort of write in, in, uh, you know, you hear about these TV shows that have got like writer's rooms and I've never been asked to be in one. So I was like, you know, how would I... Because I'm, I'm Mrs. Entertainment, you know. I'm in a frock. I've got, like, a wind sequence sign with my name on it that lives at the end of our bed now. Rich is wet, very happy about that. And I've got a throne and I've got doves on it and stuff. Like, it's all, you know, there's just jokes and there's songs and all of it's joke. There's all jokes in it. But, you know, all of that stuff sort of... When you just pair it all back and you just show people how funny you are with none of the bells and whistles, I think... I, I, I'm, I'm, it'll just, it'll just, it'll just make people go, oh, she's definitely a stand-up. This isn't just a cabaret act that's ended up in comedy, because I think sometimes that can happen when you have a, 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 a you have a thing you do. And is that? Do you recognise that happening? Do you know that that's happened from people in the industry that you're being viewed as that, or is that more about how you view yourself? I think that's how I view myself. I don't know how people in the industry view me. I can only tell you about the work that comes to me. And I know that I'm not considered a serious stand-up comedian, if that's a correct expression. But I'm not considered like one of those people. And the show's actually me subverting that this year. So I was told by uh, my ex-agent that I wasn't um, being considered a... um, um, I wasn't serious enough uh, to be considered a stand-up. So um, <clears throat> this is me sort of taking the piss out of that a bit. So it's all in a black turtleneck and I'm like talking about issues and stuff. And I've done some research on feminism on Wikipedia. <laughs> um, but that, it's also at the same time I am making a serious issue. Uh, a, a ser- Thank you. Thank you. I mean, you lot should follow me around. I'm... <laughs> but, but, great. 
but that's I, 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 you know, I don't want to. I don't want to be comfortable. I'm not. I've not been doing this that long. People shouldn't be comfortable now. I want to take myself. It's also about taking myself out of the comfort, my comfort zone, because that is where the magic happens. If something makes your stomach flip, if a, as an idea or a suggestion comes in and it makes your stomach turn over, you should do it because if that goes well then then it, it goes well and you have this insane feeling of like adrenaline but if it goes wrong then you've learned something you've learned about you've learned a skill you've learned oh this thing went wrong so the next time something like that comes along I'll fix it like and that, and that's how I like to approach comedy is 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 trial and error always trying to be better and try and move forward and leave things behind and because you know what happens as well you 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 start something new uh, you do something that someone else isn't doing. Like, I remember I used to be the only girl in comedy in a cat suit. That ain't the case anymore, babes. <laughs> and, like, and, and so, you know, I, if loads of people are wearing cat suits now, then I'm going to go and wear a fucking turtleneck. Or I'm doing, a, I'm doing the whole thing in jeans this year. I haven't worn jeans in years. I'm going to wear a pair of jeans and a black jumper, mate. And, I, and like, I'm going to just, you know, it's... It's not just about that. It's about obviously it's about material, but it's a, it's little choices like that that I, it just I just I don't ever want anyone to be bored. I want people to always be surprised. And in in the drive to do that, in the drive that you clearly have, just just tons and tons of drive to to keep surprising people, to keep changing it up for yourself. Is there an element of that whereby? Like, will will there ever be enough when you're proving something? When you're proving to the industry? I suppose every time we try and prove something to someone else, we're trying to prove it to ourselves as well. Will is there a point at which you can go, I am this now? No. Never. I want to do this forever. I want to be an old lady and I'm still doing stand-up and try and surprise people. I, it will never be enough. I, every, I love making shows. Like next year's show, shall I tell you about it? I've already come up with it. I'm going to be a robot. <laughs> I'm not even going to be on stage. It's just going to be a robot, and I'm going to be backstage like the Wizard of Oz, and it's just going to be a robot on stage, and it's all going to be about... So it came from a line that was in the show, but I've taken it out, but I was thinking to myself, like, the next stage of evolution is that we download our consciousness into computers. And I had a question, which is, what personality are you putting into computers? And, and that's where the sort of idea for this new... Like, because no-one's done a robot yet. Jade Adams is going to do a robot. <laughs> and I'm going to make that robot sing. It's going to beatbox. It's going to do all... Because, like, robots are replacing humans. They're sort of ethical questions. There's, it's a lot, there's a lot there. So that's next year's show, but this year's show's feminism. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it a different feeling when you're about to go on and do a preview of this new show, which contains no singing? Is it a different feeling backstage beforehand? Well, yeah. Talk to me about that tummy flip and how you cope with it. You're clearly aiming for it, that kind of, oh, my God, I'm in, I'm in the mouth of the wolf again. But talk to me about how you deal with that feeling. I, someone said it to me quite early on in my previews, which was, you're having an argument this year. You're arguing about something. I've never done that before. I've been entertaining. There's always, like, you know, the, the sort of entertainment aspect of things was more important to me, making sure everyone was having a good time. But this year, as well as it being re really funny, I'm making a point about something. And I haven't... 
And I haven't done that before in my entire life. And it's been, I've had therapy and she gets me to think of myself like a serious person that I could have, in, I referred, I could inflict change on people. <laughs> <laughs> but like I could, I, you know, I could be inspiring to working class women who, who, you know, like I met a girl in Superdrug on, in Leon C and she had these like 3D, like acrylic nails that were amazing. And I said to her, who did those? I was buying some makeup and she was like, who did those? She went, I did. I went, how the fuck are you working at Superdrug? And it's because she's never been told she could do anything else. And I was like, well, maybe I could be that girl that show, like, you know, I, you know, I could be the girl who says, you know, you don't, like, I worked at Asda and now I do this because I just did it. And then I wasn't, and I also got great parents who, who've been wonderfully supportive and just said, yes, go, go and do it, go and do it. We're we'll busy. Go and just go and do whatever. But also, it's not even about them. I've had the, I've had the drive to just go and be, because of all the things I've told you. So when, just before I, I do the show, I get myself into that mind of like, this is an argument and this is something you know about. You know how you feel. You know what your experience around this subject is. So all you have to do is make a point and then spend an hour proving it until you get to the end and you have your nice Jerry Springer moment where you round it all up at the end. <laughs> and that's what this, you know, this year, the show's called The Ballad of Kylie Jenner's Old Face. <laughs> I feel that with young girls especially, there's a bit of an epidemic. Like, I don't mind anyone of an age getting work done. Go for it. My friend Kelly did it. I asked her if she'd do it again. She said no, because she couldn't discipline the children. Because um, <laughs> they, like, she'd tell them off, but not, it wouldn't register on her face and they wouldn't take any notice of her. But, like, I'm talking, like, young girls, because of, like, the Kardashians and people like that, and not just them, like, everyone's getting it, fucking, oh, everyone, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, it's cool, it's empowering. It's something, I don't think, like, I, in a perfect world, we won't get it done, but, like, I'm in a, we're in an industry that's obsessed by youth, obsessed with it. So, obviously, I'm curious about it, but I think the young girls who are thinking to themselves, I don't like the way I look, who are trying to fix it by sticking shit in their face. There is something mad going on there. Like, I spent my life... have people call me a fat C-U-N-T out of their Fiesta with one door a different colour than the rest of their car. <laughs> my whole life. And I have, I've had armour against that. And how come I've got to go through that and I'm not, I don't change any of it and I have to get through it and then these girls are like, oh, my lips are thin. <laughs> like... And then add all this shit into their face. That's a trend. Because like, do you remember in the nineties when like thin eyebrows were popular? Yeah. And then that got rid. Of, like now it's all bushy eyebrows. Like it's the same with this lip shit. It's just a trend. But the stuff they're doing is irreversible. So I think that there's a bit of an epidemic with the young girls. And like whilst lots of women are at the Royal Albert Hall talking about how bad the patriarchy is, I think that we're forgetting about the girls, the young girls. And I <laughs> thanks. <laughs> And I, and that's because I was that girl. And, and I had, I had my Auntie Julie, who was a big fat woman, who, she won't mind me saying her, I, she won't be listening, but she was my dance teacher and she was a big fat lady and she used to fly through the sky and she had, she did a bit, she was flexible and she was energetic. And that was the woman I looked at. And that's the reason why I have, I, I, it was, I sort of understood that people were funny about my weight, but it didn't really matter because I was like, yeah, but my auntie Julie and like Dawn French and they're all doing fine. So like, <laughs> I'll have another bag of crisps. <laughs> but that's, yeah. So that's the sort of like, it's, it's getting myself into that mind frame. Like when I was doing the show last year, 
It was more like making sure I was happy and in a good mood beforehand. But this year, it's scripted. I'm not putting a single word... Like, I wanted to have... Because I hear these comedians that have these, like, scripted shows... And I, like, no two shows of mine have ever been the same. Because I just, like, I know what I'm doing. I just, I feel my way around it. But this one, it's scripted. I've got jokes. It's, it's written. And it, I'll be doing it the same every fucking night. Exactly the way I've, I've written it. Maybe chucking a few there, because I can't help myself. But, like, chucking a few new things each night. But it's, it's, it, I wanted to, I wanted to prove to myself that I could do a show that I could tour. Or, like, I want to be, like, I want to be considered a proper stand-up comedian. Because... It's all very well being Mrs. Light Entertainment, which I'll get at another point. But I, like, for me, I think probably a chip on my shoulder that I've got is that I want people to know I'm intelligent. And I think because of the accent and because how fun I am and all the bright colours and the sequins and the... I think, I, think I've, I think I've skirted over that a little bit. But I am. I'm super clever. And, and that's, you know, and, that, and that's what I want to prove this year, that I am. I'm just leaving a pause because they're probably going to clap again. <laughs> Talk to me about... We'll get to it. We'll get to it, if Jade wants to. Um, and you're under no compunction to. Um, talk to me about the, the writing process for this show. I know you've been working with Marcus Birdman. Yes, I have. Tell me about bringing yourself and your personality and your writing to bear on a collaborative relationship. What's been easy about that and what's been difficult about it? So I basically, from preview, so I basically just put previews in, no matter whether I've got a show or not. So my very first preview was at like this... But like a Babington House sort of place, you know, like one of those posh private members clubs, and uh, I'd just been booked for it, and they're like, do you want to do it? And I had no show. I knew I had some... I knew what I wanted to talk about, but I had no show. So I just rocked up, did no, pre- did no prep, and I just spoke for an hour. And then if I, if I got stuck where I didn't have a joke, I'd just put in a bit of old material in there just to sort of, you know, fluff it up. And then I recorded that, and then... Me and Marcus would sit. And I'm also... So I have Marcus, who is a stand-up comedian, who is basically helping me get rid of, like, the fluff in my... Because I probably say too many words when a few will do. So he's helping me get, like, super... Like, my jokes, super sharp, so they're, like, nice and condensed. And then I've got another guy called Matt Peaver, who I've worked with for the last few years, who's structurally making the show a sort of... Because he's a dramaturg. And both of them... I mean, not everyone has two people, but I love them both, so I've got, I've got both of them. But Marcus basically listens to a preview, and then we sit and we write down the funny stuff just so it's there and it's written. And then we, like, work out ways to make it funnier. And then we sit... And basically, we sit there and make each other laugh. That's how, that's how, that's how you do it. Um, and that's... Yeah, and that's... Oh, sorry. So... And then, and then you go to the next preview and you've got, you've, got new, you've got some new jokes and then you try those out and then you, and some new stuff comes in. And it's just... It's basically been that process since March... And I've, I, I do, I, I, um, Spencer Jones, who's a comedian who's very good, said to me, you must do as many previews as you've got shows up in Edinburgh and then you know you're ready. So I do 26 previews before I go up to Edinburgh, so I know I'm ready for it. I've had about, well, 25 because I didn't arrive earlier on. <laughs> um, <laughs> 25. Um, but I do, yeah, I do, I do as many, um, do as many as I can. And then, and it's just that process. It's just, and the thing is, is because it's my fourth hour now, I'm so relaxed about writing it and I'm really enjoying it this year. It's really great. Been, it's been great collaborating with Marcus as well because I've not ever done that. I've never worked with another stand up comic on anything before. And it's just been nice, like, 
Because he's like, he's been doing it for years, and he's also like a real sort of, he's got, a, he's got, I, can I say someone else's material? Yeah, yeah, of course. He was on the show recently, so we oh, might already he? have done it. He's very he's, musical and, and rhythmic in his stand-up, isn't he? He's it's got incredible. a great bit of material I love. It's got, a, it's got a big old swear word in it, is that Go all right? On. It's his material. Thank you, Marcus. He says, everyone goes on about people having... I mean, I'm going to paraphrase, but basically, everyone's always gone on about, oh, you should have high self-esteem. You should have high self-esteem. Like, what's so wrong with low self-esteem? Like, what's so wrong with it? And he does a bit more explaining. He says, have you ever met someone with high self-esteem and not thought, cut it? (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, you know, he's got... He's got, he's, you know, he just, he, he's got like a really funny sort of, you know, way. Of, and it's just, it's just works really well. And he's, he's, he teaches it. He teaches stand up. And that's, I've never been, I never did any of the courses or anything. So it's been almost like I've been on a stand up course this year and learning from another stand up comedian. It's been really, and also he lives up the road. It, it, you know, <laughs> we all live in Leon C. So it, it's worked out perfectly. Before we wrap up, because we must wrap up soon, um, if it's all right with you, I'd like to give the audience an opportunity to ask any, if there's any questions from the floor. While they're having a think, I have a final question for you, which is that in looking at your YouTube channel, which is really interesting the way you have... I, I mean, it feels like the way you've approached your career, which is just to try loads and loads of stuff. You know, it's like in a really... Like one of the, one of the kind of... Uh, uh, I suppose, creative blocks I have is, or I have had is kind of perfectionism. I'm trying to get over that. And I don't mean that in a positive way, like, mm, I'm so much of a perfectionist. I mean, it stops me from making stuff because I worry about it not being good enough. And I think you have a really healthy attitude towards making work. I mean, from some of the stuff you filmed, which was your kind of performance art stuff, you know, the fairy lights wandering out yeah. of the building, you know. Um, there, there is a lot of very varied stuff on there. We made that in a week. We went to, uh, it's basically the lampshade stuff, and we went and stayed in a cottage for a week with a with a with um, an editor and a, a filmmaker, and it was a whole group of us making films, and we made it whilst we were away together for a week. It was It was fab. The thing that most struck me, the most unusual thing that struck me in a very broad palette of different types of material is that you did something, you, you broke one of the rules. You answered back to someone who criticised you in the comments. And I felt like punching the air. It was so great. I someone, constantly do. Someone slanked, I don't even remember which video it was on, but someone said something mean. And you, as yourself, and I had to check it was you and not a fan who had an account with your name. And you answered back. And I was yeah. like... Good for you. You never see that. The, the, the whole the rules are: don't go in the comments, don't look at, don't look below the line, and if you do, don't answer back. And I thought that was a really interesting note of your character that you got stuck in. I don't give a shit. <laughs> if you came up to me in the street and said something mean about me, I'd go, "Your mum." That, and that's basically how I respond to all of them, and it drives them mad. Or like the other way is to kill it with kindness, so you'd be really nice. So like on Twitter, like, I've done that. I'm in a very famous advert. Um, you've probably, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> back balance is not. Um, <laughs> I get, you know, some, I've had some like women who like, you know, like the sisterhood it was referred to, like, who get, who, like, cause I'm in a, I'm basically in the some bingo advert. And I've had to, the sisterhood of, uh, I, I was told that the sisterhoods have said something to me about it. Um, oh, that you're sending up working class people or like you're parodying them. And I was like, sending up, babes, that's exactly what I look like. Like, that's who I am. I'm literally that girl in that video. And I, it was nice to, uh, I had an interview recently where I was able to respond to that. But I, so I get lots of shit about uh, stuff on the internet about that because it's, it's been, it's a bit, a bit, a bit nice. 
fucking advert. And, um, and I just respond to it in absolute kindness. Like, hey, babes. <laughs> there was one guy he wrote, um, uh, it, was, it was really funny. It was at Christmas. And he wrote, Merry Christmas, one and all. Except for that fat ginger cunt in the Are You Gonna Bingo advert. She can fuck off and die. And then I just wrote, hey, babes, Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Bristol, uh, Bristol, I was born in, and then I went to university in Wales, in Pontypridd, and then I stayed in Wales for nine years. I wouldn't fucking leave. I love it. <laughs> there were no comedy clubs in Wales, so one day, I, my very first stand-up gig, it was my farewell gig to Cardiff. I did a 45-minute set, and then I clicked my heels, and I went off to London. I did a whole sort of farewell thing for, like, 70 people in the restaurant I used to work in. And then I came to London, and I lived in, in East London for a while, um, moved around a few places, and then I went to Mitchum with the boyfriend, and was not it was not a happy time. And then I came out of Mitchum, went back to London, and then Rich and I met, and we knew Marcus, and Rich was like, "I'm like I've moved around, so I don't care um, where I live." And then he brought me here on one of the hottest days of the year, like two years ago, and then I was like, and I was having a cake opposite opposite your water. Ooh. <laughs> And then I was like, how much is the rent? <laughs> I'm sold. And, then, and that's how I got here. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes. Any other you to scratch What, to tick off? So Royal Abbott Hall is another... T- I still haven't... I want, it's still me, Swarovski Crystal Dress, singing opera. So that's still there. But Sydney Opera House as well would be amazing. I'd love to do that. All of my things I want to achieve involve opera and involve the big state. Because, like, uh, one of the other performers today, Jess Robinson, did a, a song called This Is My Voice. It's an old yeah. folk song. If you've ever seen... like. It was so amazing. And she basically just has lots of different voices. And then at the end of the song, she has all the voices, just Kate Bush, lots of different people. And at the end, she sings in her voice. And then she got the audience, which was a room of 5,000 women, to sing in their voice. And it was just like, I was like... <laughs> I was in absolute floods of tears. And I looked at that, and I was like, stand-up's great, and I love it. And I love, like, George Carling, the religion set. I know it word for word. It's one of my favourite bits of stand-up. Like, like sing it. <laughs> <laughs> religion is bullshit. Oh, I mean, that's, there's a show in that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's a show. Jade Adams sings George Carling. I fucking love it. Put a pin in that, mate. I fucking love it. In that goes. That's a, that's a one-off in the grand. Yeah, mate. Minimum. Can, that's good, isn't it? <laughs> oh, thanks, Jim. And thanks. Um, but it was one of the, I was just sat there and I was like, that's it for me. Like, stand-up's great and you can make people feel. But you know what makes people feel even more? It's singing and music. It's so wonderful. And she was there in the lights. And I, I mean, apart from the fact that I wanted to, like, grab her and rugby tackle her off the stage and replace her with myself, um, it was, I, I was, it was the emotion of it. Like, I love to laugh, but I also love to fucking cry. Like, I love a good cry, you know? And so, like, yeah, so all of, that's why all of them are in, like, opera in the Sydney Opera House or, like, you know, all of those. So that, yeah. Royal Albert Hall again, babes. Be great. Ladies and gentlemen, we are, we are out of time. If she would like to sing, I would invite Jade to sing if she'd like to, but... <laughs> um, Probably okay. not too loudly into the mic in case it explodes okay. the thing at the other end. 
okay. Well, apt because it is the end of the show. I'll sing Time to Say Goodbye. Time to say goodbye. Jade Adams, ladies and gentlemen. So that was Jade. I mean, you need to sort of calm down and walk it off after that one. What a story. What a lady. And just a phenomenal talent. And um, I will certainly be seeing her show uh, at the Pleasance Courtyard at half nine from July 31st to August the 25th. No day off, I notice, because she's fucking hardcore. Good work. And go and see Rich Wilson as well. Rich was uh, present at the recording of this. He's a very, very funny man. Hope to have him on the podcast soon. Um, And uh, he was there and did some excellent... He was the... I meant to mention this, actually. He's the only time... Uh, the podcast has ever had a warm-up act. Now, previously, we have done the pod directly after people's shows, in the case of Alice Fraser, uh, and we have done the the very first James Acaster episode almost seven years ago. James did a half-hour set, then we had a break, then we did the recording. But it was not the same. Rich is the official first-ever warm-up act for the Comedians Comedian podcast, and he did a phenomenal job with some very funny gear. So look out for him at Edinburgh as well. I think his show is called Death Becomes Him, and I suppose while we're here, I should tell you when and where it is. It's at 4.30 daily at the Gilded Balloon Teviot in the Wee Room. Lovely little wee room there. Um, and I see he won Best International Act at uh, the New Zealand Comedy Festival in 2018. I won Best International Act at the New Zealand Comedy Festival in 2000 and something. No, I won Best International Guest which uh, someone at the time pointed out simply means that I leave the place tidy when I leave. Um, So go and see Rich, go and see Jade, come and see me. That's all of that stuff. Thank you once again to Benji, who did the the sound tech in the room. Thanks to Nathan Wood for producing the show. Uh, Jake Crossland will have logged this by the time uh, he gets it, but uh, I'm not working for one now, but I'm sure he will. He's very efficient like that. Uh, Music was by Rob Smouton. Your podcast consultant, as ever, is Peter Dobbing. And thanks to Ross McGrain for putting the... Southend Comedy Festival together. I hope if it's still going, you see it. Uh, and uh, if you missed it, go and see it another year. It's a lot of fun. Really good festival. That's all for now. Tiny little um, uh, postamble coming at you, but only a, only a tiny one because I'm busy. Okay, guys, uh, I have a, a postamble for you, but I'm warning you, I lose my mind during it. And I'm hoping that by recording this afterwards and dropping it in, it's a warning. There is nothing of value in this next bit. It's just me grinding to a halt. So it might provide some sort of texture for for your relationship with me um, because it's uh, it's it's warts and all what I'm like. I say that. It's like I'm about to say something terrifyingly right wing. I'm not. The point is I'm warning you off this one because it is the least valuable post table I've ever done and it basically grinds to a halt. I'm trying to get out of that by disclaiming it beforehand. So my advice to you turn off now, turn off now. All right? Don't say you were warned. So I was sitting in a cafe uh, recently, not with my children. I was writing jokes, actually. I was uh, uh, drinking coffee and idly tapping things into my note-taking app. Simple note, if you're interested. The original and best. I've no idea if it's the original or the best one, but it's simple. Um, And I saw a dad of two 
and he was giving his whole self to occupy his toddler and his baby. And of course, because at the time, although I do have a toddler and a baby, they were not with me, I realised from his point of view, I was very... Now, look, if I say privileged, I don't mean that in any wider sense. I just mean I, I had a kind of um, an advantage. I was advantaged from his point of view. And it just made me think, when you're on foot, anyone in a car has an advantage. But from the point of the person in the car, actually, you're wedged in traffic and upset. Do you know what I mean? It's like if you're... You might not be being rained on like the poor sucker outside, but you've still got your own problems... And then you're probably looking up at a plane going past as you sit in the traffic jam and thinking, God, I wish I was in a plane. And then the people in the plane going past, they're thinking, oh, God, I'm worried about leg room and this person's leaning into me. And, and looking down and looking at the fields and going, wouldn't it be nice to be sat down there, on a, you know, hanging out in a field? And then the person in the field is bored because they're in a field. Where's the happiness? Where's the happiness? I, uh, I think it's... I uh, know I've got no answer to that, to where it actually is. That's just the thought I had. I think this year's show is going to be about, not that it's a show, but next year's show maybe, some of it might be about joy. And I'm hoping that some of it isn't about anything. I keep, you find yourself fulfilling a, a pattern. You find yourself kind of um, going down a groove or a channel that you're used to, a habitual pattern, despite having made a decision not to. You can make the decision not to, and then you actually have to sort of take some sort of action. You have to spot yourself doing the same thing even though you decided not to do it. Is this too esoteric? It is, isn't it? It's completely... I mean, what am I talking about? <laughs> I think these post-ambles, far from what Brett Goldstein said about them, um, uh, or about his, his supposition that they were me secretly talking to my wife, <laughs> um, I think they're just a descent into madness. If you got all of them, don't do this. If you got all of them and compressed them together, you'd have a sort of diary, but it would be the diary of a man losing his mind and falling apart. What we've learned is we need structure. Now, my only way out of this this uh, commitment that I've made of starting this recording and not having the time to redo any of it, the only way out of this is to turn that concept into a decent subject for a post-amble. So here's my, here's my one attempt. Oh, no, it's gone. <laughs> no, if you were... Oh, God. What did I say? What did I say? It's a descent into madness. And we're recording it. It's gone. It's gone. I've literally... I genuinely... I settled upon an idea there. And it just went... Now I have to make this a post-amble about how annoying it is when things just go. But it's it's gone. I mean, the temptation is just to delete it and not use it, but I feel there's texture to me <laughs> genuinely not knowing what the fuck I'm talking about. You deserve more than this. Maybe the most sensible thing to do is to make the... is to turn the concept of the post-amble into a thing in which I'm trying to shed listeners. Because I know very few of you hang on for these, and if you have hung on for it, welcome... I don't want you here, evidently, because if I had a modicum of respect for you, I'd have planned what I'm going to talk about. But then at the same time, I find that sometimes when I don't plan, that's where good stuff comes from. Here's a thing. Oh, thank God. I noticed listening back to... This is explicitly writing-related. I did this preview in Southend. I was listening back to it this morning. And most of the notes I was making were discovering starting points for one day writing a new and more meaningful thing discovering those starting points in the 
tangents I was going on as I tried on stage to say some half-assed idea I'd written down. Right, do you get it? So I write an idea about Lego. And look, it's not stepping on Lego, not a hack. But I've got an interesting angle on some Lego. And, um, God, my life. What have, what have you got there, old-timer? I've got an interesting angle on some Lego. Um, I had an interesting angle on Lego, and then I said it at the time, and it was quite funny. But in getting there, I kind of went down a tangential path onto something else about, God knows, presents and birthday cards, and then said something I wasn't expecting to. Then I got to the punchline about Lego, which was fine. And then listening back to it, I'm like, you know what? That tangent about birthday cards, that's where the real stuff is. So maybe that's the new system is it's like, okay, let's try some sort of an analogy. You are, you're banging your, what do you bang into a rock face? Crampons? Or is that something on your belt? No, that's carabiners. You bang your crampon into a gap and you pull it. And it's, okay, there we go. That's a, that's a strong bit. And then in the, no, it doesn't work as a, <laughs> it doesn't work as an analogy at all because the whole point I'm making is that you are not doing that. What I am finding the most useful way for me to work is to blurt stuff out. It's the blurt. That's a good show title, the blurt. The blurt is you blurt stuff out whilst you're trying to get from shonky idea A to shonky idea B, and it's the blurt. That's what then becomes good idea A for next time, and probably it gets fractal so that you collect all of your blurts call them your material, then ideally the blurt in between the central blurts. This is too much. This is too much. Why would you listen to this? The blurt. I like that. Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.